the ideas, the leaders, the lives that are shaping Denmark and the world. From Blocks Hub in Copenhagen, Denmark, this is Global Denmark. What does it take to transform a mindset or to inject positivity into an organization that can lead to positive growth? These are some of the questions I had for our special guest today, Skip Bowman. Skip is the managing director of Global Mindset and the founder of the Safe to Great tool. Skip has had a long and distinguished career, both internationally and in Denmark, working with companies in a variety of sectors on really cultivating growth mindset, working on issues such as psychological safety and how to create positive contagious change. These were also some of the themes we talked about and looking at cultural aspects, some of the barriers when we're talking about the individual, but also what's specific to, to Denmark, the necessity for having these traits in a globalized world, and much, much more. Uh, I think you're really going to enjoy this one, guys, and I really did as well. So without further ado, we bring you Skip Bowman. All right, we are back after a wonderful summer holiday. It's uh, it's great to be back and recording, and we have a very special guest today who is calling in from France, and that is Mr. Skip Bowman. Skip, can you hear me over there? Loud and clear, my friend. Loud and clear. Excellent. How are you? Hot. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's it's an amazing, um, uh, if you like, heat wave across Europe currently, and the south of France is a bit on the sweaty and hot side. Uh, so, um, yeah. But I'm great. Uh, I love the climate down here. I could just do with one day a little bit below 36 degrees at the moment. <laughs> anyway, how you doing? It's also hot here, but uh, it's not 36. So we're, we're Danish hot, which is anything above 25, I guess. Isn't that what they say? Sounds good. <laughs> good. So there'll be a lot of uh, I like the phrase tears. Danish hot. Danish hot sounds <laughs> good. That, that's, that's, trade, that's trademarked. So, all right. Okay. Excellent. It's all good. Well, uh, I really appreciate you uh, taking the time today, and um, you know I've taken a look at some of your work and um, working with growth mindset and psychological safety. Um, I think I really want to take a deep dive with you and see uh, what your thoughts are on these issues. So maybe we could start off the podcast today by you telling me a little bit about what you mean by developing a global mindset. I know that's the name of uh, your company that you've been uh, leading now for some years. So maybe we can start there. What, what does it mean to have a global mindset for you and what do you actually do in your organization? Well, originally uh, I'm Australian and I spent most of my adult life living in, uh, you know, other countries. So I think I became very curious about, because of my own experiences, about the psychological nature of encountering the unknown or unusual. What does it awaken in us psychologically? That, that's where it kind of started. And, and although global mindset includes a little bit more than just the psychological look at it, there are other aspects like the, the more social look at it. And there's also the sort of like the knowledge side of it. My sort of like primary departure as an organizational psychologist is really in, you know, what, what kind of understanding our, what happens when we meet things that are different, people who are different, situations that are different, what does that mean? And global mindset includes that meeting with the unusual and the unknown, but there's also somehow how do we bring things together? Global mindset must solve that, if you like, global local gap. It's very hard to imagine anyone who's not influenced by global issues. How do we make sense of that, whether it be a, a policy, a, a law, a company approach, a product? How do we make sense of that? Um, and likewise, how do we contribute to global processes? And, and as we can see, as societies, as leaders, as employees, we struggle with this. And in a, in a globalized world, that, that is a skill we're going to have to master because we can see the problem of parochialism. We can see the problem when we go too local and become very, very stuck in our own little world. There are, there are problems that we can't solve unless we can lift ourselves up with this global mindset. So there's a broad swathe of things in that, but I have an interest both on the personal level, but also if we think of the more global, organizational, political level, there's, a, there's an aspect to how global mindset can help us solve things like climate change, COVID-19, et cetera. That's really interesting. What, what do you think then are some of the barriers to cultivating this global mindset? Maybe we could start at the personal level, because right away my my kind of intuition is that there's this there's this level of fear or discomfort with 
meeting the unknown, as you, you mentioned before? Yeah, I mean, neurologically, our wiring hasn't changed much in 40,000 years. So the same wiring that enables us to do something to sort of become a, a more sophisticated ape also got us to Mars. But, you know, we're wired for tribes, one issue, but we're also negatively wired in the sense that when we see things dangerous, unusual, and, you know, there's this, there's, there's that prevalence or preference for safety or this is dangerous, what do I do, mm. as opposed to curiosity as an opposite force, if you like. But they're uneven. If people say to you that fear and curiosity are evenly based in, in people, that's not true. We are predominantly fear-driven in the sense that when we see something unusual, our first reaction is to go, run away from it, kill it. <laughs> I, I can see how that's evolutionarily uh, beneficial, not to just be curious well, absolutely. there's a lion no, running at you. Yeah, and you know, there are some of us who are a little bit more curious than others, but in, in reality, we're all wired that way. And what happens is that if you adequately stimulate our fear, we become increasingly you know, fight, flight, freeze, which are the three classic psychological reactions. And that's what happens when we meet strange people or somebody says or does something unusual or unexpected. Even small things can activate these reactions. But clearly we're not you know, out in the savannah being hunted as prey why can't the the rational part of the brain overcome this this more well, it, uh, primal response well it does quite effectively as somebody once said it's, it, we're the only primate that can sit in a small tube with 400 other primates without killing each other <laughs> so, so, so because if you put chimpanzees into uh, an aeroplane, they, they would be, it would be <laughs> messy. Um, <laughs> yeah. So we have this ability, we have learned, we have a learned capability which enables us to, and I get very complex, you know, rituals and things like that enable us to coordinate our actions in ways that make us civilized. But humans are always one step away from becoming, I was actually no curious, I was listening to a podcast with the famous woman who researched chimpanzees in Africa. And mm. she said that she originally thought that chimpanzees were really nice humans. It was that they weren't <laughs> aggressive until the, the tribe, the group of chimpanzees she was watching became very, very violent uh, against one of their ex-members of their of their family group. So it's interesting that in reality, humans, much like all apes, can be very caring, can be, but we have innate aggressive violent sides and, mm. and we have that. And, and yes, our cognitive ability means that we're able to overcome it. But famously in a book like Daniel Goleman's book, Focus, he will talk about, yeah. you know, frazzle, uh, and a number of concepts that have, in essence mean that, that we, we can only for so long cognitively rationally control our emotional responses and and over time or in within a certain situation they get overwhelmed and and, and there's a wonderful book called switch that also describes it somewhat more metaphorically which is that our brain's a little bit like a rider on an elephant our mm. emotional side is the elephant mm. and our cognitive side is the rider mm. if the elephant wants to go in one direction no matter how hard the rider pulls it will go in that direction mm, that's i think metaphor. it's a it's a great metaphor to understand whether it be in global intercultural settings or whether it be change. And a lot of things we know about global mindset as an idea help us to understand when people meet change. It's a similar kind of reaction. It's not vastly different, if at all, from a psychological perspective. So unfortunately, you know, we're not on the savannah, but uh, in reality, our wiring is negative. Our wiring is still fairly primitive in this area. We have a very sophisticated cultural way of modifying uh, people's behavior through you know, various forms of social control. And they help us create societies that function really well. But those things break down. We've seen in COVID-19, we've seen lots of other scenarios where we're only ever a step away from chaos. Yeah. And it doesn't actually take that long for our society. And that's what scared a lot of people with COVID-19 those days when we were sitting in Copenhagen. The streets were empty. That you know, kind of that veneer of everything's normal can just be lifted so quickly. Yeah, Absolutely. And I think it's for the first time ever since, probably since you know, the last days of the war in 1940, not 44, in, in Denmark before they were uh, before they were liberated. We've ne never seen anything like it. A curfew, my goodness. I mean, that's it's unheard of. Uh, so that was a, an experience that brought us back to this. Is is society just a veneer, <laughs> which is which is a is good to have that experience. What is society? What is culture to you? Well, it's a complicated thing. I mean, humans humans have this ability to learn and to to copy, right? 
combined with what we call, theoretically speaking, social identity theory. In other words, we have this ability, when we, when we create rules and we, we have tribal powers that enable us to enforce norms of behavior yeah. um, through inclusion and exclusion. Yeah. And culture fundamentally is that. In other words, what happens is we have a whole series of habits that we learn over time, call them tradition, call them habits, and our society enforces them very, very subtly and not always subtly. If you're an outsider coming in, you'll feel them very strongly, but in essence through this what we call inclusion-exclusion effect. Because we're herd animals, we fear being rejected, and so it's an extraordinarily powerful form of social control. Mm. conventionalism, traditionalism, all those kinds of things are examples of how do we actually both create societies that are safe, but on the other hand, we also create societies that are very status quo oriented. It's really interesting. And, you know, what is your thoughts on kind of Hofstede's classical approach there to culture is about values, it's about the rituals and practices? Do you kind of agree with that approach and how this leads to inclusion or exclusion, or do you take a more kind of contemporary view on things? I'm not quite sure what that contemporary view is. I mean, I, I think I think uh, he certainly opened up uh, a piece of uh, sort of an avenue of research which has been worked on consistently and, and very interestingly afterwards. I mean, I read his books early in my sort of like journey into intercultural sort of understanding intercultural differences and so on. Yeah. The key issue that I would probably have with his work and 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 also sometimes with more recent work, I think the most Relevant recent work is a is a, a massive study called the Globe Study, which was been done yeah. in about two two thirteen two fourteen. I think that's is the most rigorous study of cross cultural phenomenon. Yeah, uh, done by the a broad group of domestic and international researchers. So I don't really buy into the research data that that Hofstede, but he did find some phenomena that are important and have proven to stand up since, and that's something like power distance, for example. I think one of the biggest issues that I might have, because my approach into cross-cultural is fundamentally more linguistically oriented. Okay. I think a lot of theories of culture, of course, sorry, intercultural theories lack a theory of language. Mm. Um, so I come in from what we call psycholinguistic angle, and that does sound a little bit like something weird, but essentially what it means is... It sounds scary. It does a bit. (laughs) I'm a psycholinguist. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Get get away from me. Yeah, I'm going to cause you pain with language. Um, (laughs) No, um, the essence here is what's the impact? For example, my my master dissertation was was the impact of second language use on psychological well-being. What is interesting and challenging more recently when we we look at what happens in workplaces is if we don't think a lot about language, we tend to get stuck in things because in reality... Many of the things going wrong, and if you look at some of the more recent research at Harvard and so on, most of the things going wrong are actually linguistic problems, in other words, misunderstandings. You don't even get to the point of values because you didn't even actually understand what the person said. So to understand how we are, it's relatively complex to understand how do we make sense of behaviors, words, style in certain situations. Because fundamentally, if I'm grasping my Google Translate, I mean, I haven't even got to the point of discussing values. I haven't understood any of that anyway, because it kind of assumes that we both are competent users of the language we're speaking. But that's very rare. Right. That principle of charity is not always given. It's funny. Uh, maybe, maybe we could zero in on one particular language and culture, Denmark, where we both live. What do you see kind of as maybe, first of all, the overall framework of Denmark as an inclusive or exclusive culture? And what role does language play into that? I call it the secret language. And there aren't very many global companies that have the privilege of a secret language. And Danish ones do. It's like, it's like being in a, <laughs> I don't know, the, the CIA or something, because yeah. they can always just turn around in front of all their wonderful non-Danish employees and say whatever they damn well like. <laughs> Americans so, sorry, I didn't catch that. Oh, no, no, don't worry. It wasn't important. It was... Yeah, you know, that is great. I mean, I speak, I'm bilingual in Danish, so I mean, I, they, they can't catch me out without <laughs> But that, that creates an interesting scenario because in, in essence, in a global context, Danes can be enormously private in, in public. In other words, they can basically share all their ideas openly about other people, both good and bad, without anyone knowing what they're talking about. <laughs> I, I love these stories too, where um, 
when they're onboarding expats, they hear these stories about we're going to take the meeting in Danish, but uh, we're going to we're going to do like a one minute wrap up at the end where we'll do a quick summary. Uh, why you know, why are the expats there? <laughs> exactly. No, to for inclusion because we we want to we want you at the meeting, even though you can't understand a damn word. Uh, but don't worry, we'll do a thirty second wrap up to. Know, that's, uh, a, that's extraordinary. Uh, extraordinary. I've heard these stories and it's a bit scary. Yes, it's a bit sad. Yeah, but I've I've kind of worked with that issue quite a bit. I mean, I, I wrote a blog which went very viral a few years back. Why Danes are so rude. I can get back to that, but but in essence, you know, Denmark is the second or second most culturally homogenous society on the planet. Japan, I think, is number two or number one, something like that. So. Basically, what happened when they lost the territories in, in Schleswig-Holstein, they became super Danish. And, and that's where it all gets a bit complicated. I mean, even in Denmark, being Catholic is a bit weird. So, yeah. So, you know, yeah, there's, it yeah, there's only, uh, there's only I think, 40,000 in the whole country. And... Yeah, it's a very small... I mean, I, I grew up in a, in a relatively racially, um, religiously diverse culture. So I found that quite surprising that people with a Catholic background feel somewhat separate. And I have close connections with the, with the Jewish community in, in, in Denmark as well. And yep. similarly, yep. I feel somewhat isolated uh, in that context. But there is a historical legacy here. And when you combine that, with a, a very effective socialization process where the vast majority of Danish people go through the, the same social, socialization process. Schooling is 70 or 80% the same, yep. um, which has some enormous strengths. And it's a bit of a Scandinavian thing. I mean, people don't break the law as much or do weird things simply because they invest so heavily in a very homogenous schooling system. Yes. That's very unusual globally. Uh, so that explains a lot. And that's why, to tease the Danes, I, I would say to them that there's a machine that, that removes the skin on potatoes, which an old one where you put all the potatoes in it and you, you sort of turn it round and, and the potatoes rub up against each other for long enough. They all end up looking white, right? Yeah. And that's essentially what the schooling system does. It whitewashes everything. It, it, well, everything becomes a bit the same. And, you know, yeah. and, and I know that and, and that's quite a critical take on it and perhaps a bit ridiculing. It's inevitably a wonderful investment. And that's why Americans always, when they come to, to Denmark, feel that the Danes must be brainwashed because they're all the same, <laughs> so well behaved and stuff like that. And this has got to do with the way they invest heavily in, in socializing. Now, Unfortunately, that socialization is relatively narrow-banded. And actually, even a famous Danish author wrote about 10, well, maybe a little longer than that, a book saying that the Danish socialization system doesn't actually favor particularly non-Danish ethnically boys because the education itself is designed kind of around a feminine ideal. Right. And that's a Danish anthropologist writing this book, Anna right. Knudsen. So the issue here is that it, it's a narrow band. And that means that when somebody comes and is maybe of the Muslim faith or some other faith, a ghetto is inevitable because there is no room within Folkeskolen, which is the, the Danish schooling system for people who are racially diverse and, and, and religiously diverse. That's, that's tricky to imagine. Right. So um, it's not a model that's, you know... Um... Know, built upon integration of a different kind of ways of being and doing, but more of you either assimilate into this codex of a feminine yep. model or you're going to be left out of the game in a way. Yeah, it's extremely it's extremely difficult in a, in a society because you might be able to talk about inclusion, but if you haven't lived it, it's hard for you to understand it. You know, when I hire people in my team, if they don't have deep, profoundly lived experience of being included or excluded, to sit on the periphery of a society or a culture and have to adapt. You don't get it. What do you think that is? Because I think you're right. Do you think it's that kind of rewiring of the brain due to forced adaptation that's happened along the way? There's no doubt that certainly, I mean, cold turkey is probably the only way to do it. I mean, two things I could say. In my life experience, I was thrust into a French-speaking Swiss family when I was 22. No internet, no telephone home and very few english speakers around me that's cultural cold turkey that'll do um, yeah and the thing is that if you're in a situation where you don't have a lot of power which i was an au pair right so i had no power at all that's my definition <laughs> of powerless role um so apart from dominating a one and a half year old boy yeah, uh, to, yeah, yeah. to do this and that but but, but it's does. in that sense where you have to adapt Yep. Um, that I think is as profound. And that's why many expats and many young people today who travel have either wealth or 
the power to avoid the discomfort of being weak, of feeling embarrassed and so on, which are the great barriers to real change. It's only when you're forced to that you overcome your fear of being embarrassed, fear of looking stupid. That is the expat bubble in essence, isn't it? It's a yeah, prote- yeah, yeah. It's protective bubble around this yeah, yeah, and and that's why I say that you know you meet you meet I meet a lot of expat leaders uh, in in my my role, and some of them are appalling. I'm sorry yeah. to say because they're they're almost worse than than somebody who hasn't had cross cultural experiences, but is curious. They are often fundamentally um, mentally very lazy about these things. And because they've had powerful roles, you know, the great white chief kind of thing, they've yeah. been able to dominate their environment. That doesn't yeah. help you. It's bad for you mentally. You end up yeah. being a real, real asshole. That's a yeah, yeah, I like. yeah. I, I, I've seen this, you know, this kind of voluntary segregation to the bubble, yeah. and basically, you know, it's, it's, an, it's an, inter, it's an interesting approach because it, it is kind of this lack of vulnerability. I don't know if it's a lack of curiosity as well. It might be. It's always interesting to see going into different cultures, especially when Western individuals go to other Western cultures, but still don't make any um, kind of move into the local. I'm always curious. Yeah, from a research perspective, it's been a while since I've looked into the books, but certainly for some time, the, some of the biggest challenging assignments for expats was often moving to cultures that are relatively culturally similar rather than ones that are relatively different. Mm. And it's got to do with expectations in the sense that when you're prepared for that if I move to West Africa, things are going to be probably fairly different. I become more mentally prepared for it. But right. an English person going to Australia will think it's the same and then suddenly right. realize that it's not. And that it impacts that sort of cognitive dissonance thing in a different way. If I'm expecting a big gap, I tend to manage it better. I'm expecting it to be the same. Yeah, it's really interesting. I see that echoed too with uh, Danes coming back from abroad, this kind of reverse culture shock where yeah. there, is, there is this kind of thought that, okay, we're, we're just going home, oh. quotation marks. Sometimes they struggle even a lot more than expats in their reintegration, which is really interesting. Yeah, think, yeah. Point. Yeah, and it's often quite hard to come back because there aren't many job opportunities. Um, and you expect to come back with all your great experience internationally, and it's not necessarily – there often aren't jobs. It's just aren't enough jobs here. Let's kind of take a look at this. We have the individual person or an organization that um, essentially wants to be safe psychologically. And it sounds like in a homogenous organization where the rules are clear and you're part of the game, you've achieved that. So why should one then give that up and change to kind of cultivate a more global approach when you're giving up that very safety that you wanted? I might in the cultural sense call it a comfort zone in, in the sense of, you know, why step out of your culturally cultural comfort zone. If you're going to make sense of what's going on around you and open up some perhaps more growth or constructive interpretations of, for example, if you take Brexit, right, similar kind of situation, although I could get really caught up in some politics of that, but, but in essence, how do I make sense of things that happen far away and yet impact me greatly locally? Or yeah. do they? And how do I make sense of that? So I think being able to step out of your own situation and look at it from a different perspective and, and what we call perspective shift on a psychological level is a growth mindset goal. Mm-hmm. People who are able to, to shift perspective are more creative and can manage more, more resilient because they can shift and say, okay, let's look at this from a different perspective. How do we make sense of that? And I think that's what, you know, working on a, on a global mindset, being more culturally savvy can help people do is, I mean, I mean, I grew up in a monoculture, monolingual, conservative redneck part of the world. Yeah. You know, probably <laughs> as soon as I stepped off the plane in Switzerland in minus 10 degrees and it was snowing, I think I started my <laughs> my shock, my your, shock your, process. Your walkabout, yeah. Yeah, I left Perth, it was 45 degrees, and I, and I landed at minus 10 <laughs> or 15. Um, so these things matter in terms of understanding, you know, how, how do we deal with it? So I think there's some benefit in this. But today, it's become increasingly easy to cocoon yourself from these things. So we've seen some really positive signs of globalization of steps where people are starting to work together, whether it be in the form of you know environmental movements, mm-hmm. if we see it in the sense of political unions like the European Union and things like that. So we see some positive directions of multilateralism, multiculturalism, and yet we see the opposite 
just as much and and it's a constant battle uh, if you like against these more you know simplistic i would say and i don't mean that in an i kind of mean it because i i think mentally it's useful and it's necessary for us to help us lift up people's ability to shift perspective because when you say tolerant what does that mean it's ability to see things from another perspective and that that is always useful we know that it's crucial for really effective leadership and communication so i think that's why it's beneficial for everyone and it, and it will mean that they'll feel more comfortable navigating these strange experiences because you're going to have them in your street no matter what i mean if the postal company delivers your post is bought out by a company in china for example that could happen yeah and that's the future there's i mean there's no step back in that i know brexit they'd love to step back but they don't haven't really thought that through have they Right. I mean, it won't change the fact that foreign influence is inevitable. Yeah, so it's it's kind of about accepting the the globalistic world we're in, and that's not going anywhere. You are and learning to navigate it in a in a positive way, and yeah. I don't think that comes naturally. As and as I said, when it comes to developing mindset, whether it be in the terms of your global mindset or in terms of your growth mindset, this is not a a comfort zone thing. It means that. Over time, a little bit like, you know, when you learn to ski, you know, when you first learn, you, you can't even take, you know, the, 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 bunny, uh, <laughs> the bunny hill, which is as flat as anything. But over time, even quite difficult terrain becomes comfortable. And that's because you're constantly pushing yourself a little bit out of your comfort zone to be able to see, okay, this isn't as steep or this isn't as hard. I can do this. And your skills improve. You get better at it. You get faster at it. You get more comfortable doing it. And, uh, you get successful at it. And these things lead to, you know, this sort of like cultural proficiency, which is good for you. Yeah. I, I cannot see, you know, in a global world that we can work without this. Because the Chinese solution is not a good one. I mean, totalitarianism is not an option. No. You mentioned before kind of the the concept of homogeneity and also in the educational sector. And I'm, I, I ran an international school program in Copenhagen for some years. And I really think that um, having a global perspectives course should almost be mandatory in the curriculum at this point in terms of preparing the next generations for navigating in this complexity and being ready for perspectivization. That Also that curiosity, especially when the curriculum is so nationalistic in its essence. You're balancing that need to socialize based on traditions, on conventions and rules, you know, reading your literature, starting to understand your own culture well, but... But and but where do you open up and 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 show a real curiosity about other cultures and so on? And the yeah. hard part is when you've got to fake it a bit because in Danish society there's very little diversity, so it's hard to fake it. You know, it might be easy in an international school where you have a lot of different cultures present, but it's hard in a normal Danish school because there just there won't be very much. Right, I mean, yeah. there are in pockets of Denmark. It depends, but I don't want to generalize too much. But it, it makes it a bit hard to sort of fake a cultural diversity thing if there isn't any. right <laughs> i'm not yeah. sure you can learn it cognitively you might it's a bit it's a little different than mathematics isn't it i mean you have to kind of either set up physical exchanges in the uh, post-covid world or you know have the tools to do virtual exchanges I, i'm not sure how to best simulate that environment you're, you're you're right there it is a challenge if you don't have the compositional diversity there in-house so skip you've developed a model called safe to great and i know that it's kind of this interplay between growth mindset and psychological safety. Can you can you say a little bit about this model and how it might address some of the things we're talking about today? Well, there's been a lot of interest over the last three or four years since uh, Amy Edmondson wrote the book Psychological Safety and sort of introduced the world to the concept of, of psychological safety. And I think, you know, in essence, it's helping us understand a little bit how people respond to and how, how how we make them think, act agilely, responsively, be alert in, in the right kind of way. Because there's two types of alert. There's alert, which is, oh, my God, I'm going to die. Alert, oh, this is interesting. I'd like to learn more. What we want with psychological safety is, oh, this is interesting and I'd like to learn more and try new things, not the other one. Yeah. And in her context, psychological safety is very much linked to the concept of speak up cultures. In other words, that if people fear that what they say will be used against them, um, they won't say anything. And when people don't say anything, we get all sorts of problems. So understanding the mechanics of that is pretty important no matter what. But, but what is psychological safety? Well, it's interestingly defined as that 
I feel it's because when you say the word safety, most leaders say, oh, that's people feeling comfortable. And that's where it gets problematic because there is fundamentally a one leadership paradigm that dominates theory X historically been defined as, which is that people are lazy and if the only way you can motivate them is to scare them. Yeah. So when that model is the dominant model, that means if I say to you as a, as a consultant, I want to create safety in your organization to say that, God, that's just laziness. Right. I want to create laziness. Yeah. So that's our biggest challenge here in terms of understanding what is the value of psychological safety. So psychological safety is understanding the difference between safe in the sense that nothing can hurt me, sort of like, therefore, stick to the status quo, I'm hiding here as opposed to a much more active sense of safety. So when I feel safe, I feel that I can try things, speak up, meet new people. That's what safety should look like because that leads to growth. It leads to growth in behavior and thinking in, in, in businesses and operations. And that's what we're looking for. So without this level of psychological safety, we don't have it. And the biggest reason why we don't have psychological safety in many teams and organizations is because we have too much of what we call the theory x style of leadership an aggressive defensive type of leadership that's coercive and controlling the impact of coercive controlling leadership generates low levels of psychological safety and other people tend to have moderate levels of fear of reprisal fear of rejection fear and so on and that that's not good for people speaking up and trying new things so that's the essence of my model is if we, when we create psychological safety, we create the foundation for a growth mindset. You know, it was that ability to learn, to, to adapt, to be responsive, to build new teams, to build organizations proactively and solve problems uh, agilely. Excellent. I mean, that kind of makes a lot of sense to me now that you first start with creating that culture or that personal psychological safety which is the prerequisite for a growth mindset, and then you can reap all the benefits of having this. Skip, I think that's a great place to take a break, and we will come back with the quickfire round to wrap up the podcast today. Studying for an executive MBA at Henley Business School in Denmark is an intense and rewarding experience. If you want to achieve the best possible outcomes in business and in life, Henley can give you the skills and knowledge you need through the Henley MBA. For more information, visit henley.dk. All right, we are back with today's special guest, Skip Bowman. Skip, you ready to uh, take a dive into the quickfire round? Yep. Let's do it. What habits, routines, or rituals do you do every day to stay mentally or physically sharp? In my case, I've almost always got a project, whether it be work-related or personally. Right now, I'm, I'm renovating a 19-bedroom hotel in France and having to learn French again. Uh, so that, that keeps me extremely mentally agile and very tired at night. So, I mean, my, my kids think I'm crazy, uh, but me and my, my wife, we're, we're always setting, you know, really big stretch goals. And, and like this situation right now, running two businesses and <laughs> having to understand how to tile in French and buy the right products. And, and I mean, it's exhausting, but, you know, I wouldn't, I can't really function without it. So to me, I live that kind of growth mindset ideal that, you know, if, you, if you're not curious, but you need, you need a mission. You can't just be curious. I don't think that leads anywhere. I think you need a goal. You need to aim high, as I call it. And I think we do that. And, and that, that, that gives you sweat and, uh, and satisfaction. So renovating a 19-room uh, home wasn't enough. You had to do it in French, right? You just had to take it to that next level. Oh, look, I, li- I like that, that sense of, you know, I mean, I I learned French many years ago, um, but I learned Danish then when I was 24, which is considered probably fairly late and now bilingual. I like the journey into a culture. It's very, very demanding mentally and personally, but I do love that. It's it's like, I don't know, it's an unexplored world you dive into and, and you explore sides of yourself. And a lot of people who are bilingual tend to experience it as having a positive sense of schizophrenia in the sense that I can <laughs> play and be, I don't know. I, I actually call myself Richard down here because that's which is my real name. Um, I haven't called myself Richard for a long time, but the French say it so nicely, so I rather like it. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, you're, you're skipping Richard. That's a, the duality you're being, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, no, that's I, I like that. And there's a panache, as the as the English and French would say, to 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 the sound of it. Your life is starting to sound like it. Do you remember those commercials with the uh, like Dosekis, the most interesting man in the world? <laughs> Like uh, you got to take a look. It's like he lo- he's so interesting. He learned Chinese in French. And it's like <laughs> these things like about what makes this guy. Uh, you're well, you're I on think, your you're on your way. 
Yeah, I think it, you know, it, I can't imagine being any different. I mean, being an entrepreneur for, for 10 years is a bit the same. Writing a book is a bit the same. You know, a new client is the same. When I do organizational development, I have to dive into a culture and learn it and understand what's valuable and what's not valuable in this culture. And, and I enjoy those journeys into those things like that. So that keeps me very sharp. Uh, and I am a bit of a sponge in that respect in terms of being able to notice things. And the more different cultures I experience, the better I am at noticing the differences. All right. Well, uh, I look forward to uh, following along on the progress of that hotel. I, I know you're posting on LinkedIn and uh, <laughs> I hope you give I hope you give some vlogs in French so we can evaluate your French as well. Bien sûr. <laughs> wow. <laughs> there won't be a dry eye. But um, have you ever undergone any one-off experience or event that you would credit with a leap forward in your performance or the person you become? It's a point I make in my book, to be honest. There's two, there's two forms of learning, one of which is catastrophe, and I've had a few of them where you're forced to change your approach mm-hmm. um, because the humiliation reads a catastrophic point. <laughs> there's another form of learning, too, which I think a lot of, uh, for example, if you look at you know, this sort of like uh, fear, failure, we have to fail fast kind of way of thinking about learning, and that's the catastrophic version. There's another version, which is what I and others would call the epiphany version of learning, um, and an epiphany is very different, and I've had a few of them in my life, where you suddenly you're, you reorganize yourself and how you see the world in a moment, and they often come, as people who write about epiphanies talk about, um, walking along the seaside or or in some moment of what we call calm alertness is Mm. called and we suddenly i mean i've had a few of them and one of one of which is where you you suddenly realize that what you've been doing is wrong and you need to do you need to do something different not in the sense that you you did something wrong and you feel embarrassed that that just isn't you anymore it's like a skin on a snake or something you know Mm. it just peels off and you let go of something and that's an epiphany it's a moment where you suddenly see clearly yourself and other things in a new way. And you can't control, and learning is uncontrolled, but people often say to me, oh, we need to create this classroom where people learn something. I say, well, learning's accidental by and large. Mm. And I've done 25 years teaching adults, and I can reassure you that you cannot control their learning process. You can stimulate it, but you need to stimulate it broadly because every person has their learning moments in different settings and they will learn surprising things. Yeah. Um, and, and, and we need to make space for that. But epiphany is another part of it. So for me, uh, whether it be letting go of my parents or letting go of um, my connection to Australia or whether it be, you know, realizing that I wanted to, you know, develop this hotel in France or things like that. These are moments where you suddenly see the world differently and your 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 goals and values realign again in a different way. And I don't necessarily think we are the same. I think people get too caught up in authenticity that we always have to be ourselves. I rather like to see that we have a lot of we have more selves in us and by by allowing that to come out, you can have those epiphanies where you realize, well, maybe your life can change in directions. And I think that's, uh, that is also a possible learning experience, a transformational one and positive. That's really well, well said. And, uh, you know, I think in terms of having these epiphanies or having a key insight in learning, it, you really see it just, it all comes into the individual and their place and their time. And it's not something you can impose from the outside. There's an interesting studies of creativity because we always get very caught up in a sort of like a transactional creativity, which is really in essence not creativity, but problem solving. This sort of calm alertness, this ability to, you know, to put your mind into neutral and allow it to to form and to reshape things is one of the great human capacities, but it doesn't work well sitting in front of a computer being forced to do it. It works best, you know, walking along a harbour front. And just yeah. letting your brain work. And that is a fundamentally human quality. And I think in the future, as some a really cool book called Team Human, uh, written by uh, an author, which I can't remember right now, but he, he writes, if we, we must really spend our time focusing on developing those human skills that computers will never be able to. Epiphanies don't come to computers. No. So, no. you know, our deep intuitive 
emotionally and cognitively intuitive side is is something we need to to continue to work on and that is through reflection it's through managing our awareness and and our mental states better and i think i i think we're getting better at that i think mindfulness has helped us realize that we can be better at managing our mind and our mental resources absolutely and i think there's, there's a lot more to be done there to bring out the best in humans and i think schooling will have to change to evolve into this because 50 percent of our jobs will be gone in in nine years time by 2020 30 yeah. and and covid 19 has sped that process up i mean automation robots are going to increasingly dominate so we're going to have to learn to be humans i completely agree skip you seem like a uh, an emotionally intelligent person but i, I want to know are there any personality traits that you've wrestled with in terms of achieving this kind of emotional intelligence being an asshole (laughs) i was was getting that vibe i I didn't want to say it (laughs) i'm not sure my parents got everything right (laughs) but i don't hold it against them i I think I, i think i think i've done quite a lot of good work since with the help of some wonderful partners um, who have cajoled and given me the feedback that was necessary uh, to see myself and others differently. I think I may have had an emotional antenna out, but I didn't quite know how to use it. Right, <laughs> and right. I don't always know how to use it. I mean, when we become emotionally intelligent, it's not really a, a sort of a static thing. It's like a dynamic thing. I mean, yesterday, after carrying 35 kilogram bags of sand around, I don't think I was very emotionally intelligent, <laughs> actually. <laughs> I think I was just sweaty and frustrated, I think was probably the right word for it. I think I've got better at, at catching yourself, get better at, there's a lot of mechanisms you can deploy. I mean, I, I, like many other leaders, struggle a little bit with impatience and anger management. And these are really important things. And I've had to work with that a lot. And, and, and that's very common themes for quite a lot of leaders I coach. It's really, I mean, people say, oh, well, we're doing delusion coaching. No, we're doing anger management. Yeah, yeah. This is group therapy. Yeah, yeah. And they need to work on it because some of them are just horrific. Yeah. And unfortunately, corporate life means that they get less and less feedback as they get more senior. So they actually become more impossible. Right. And that kind of dovetails back to what you're saying. Then you've created an environment that's not psychologically safe. Nope. And, and you don't know. Yeah, yeah. You don't know it. And nobody will ever tell you. It's the oldest lesson in the book about power, unfortunately. But um, yeah. So yeah, I have to struggle with, with with those things. That's the battle. I just know, and luckily, as you get older, you get a little slower. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe that helps. I was an impossible eighteen-year-old. God, jeez, I wouldn't have employed myself. What a you nightmare! Gotta, you got to slow it down. You got to slow. It. All right, Skip. I'm gonna get. I'm gonna give you a chance here to tell our audience something weird about you that you uh, that you've never uh, shared in the public sphere. Okay. I'm very open guy though, so that, that's a big ask. <laughs> There's children listening. Yeah, it's a bit like that. No, wait till I've got a joke about a radio show. I'll tell you offline. But 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 no. Um, a curious feature of my particular school is the, the, that I was a I was an organist and choir singer uh, for most of my years until I was about 17. So I spent many 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 hours uh, working in the church. So and and working with church music and and so on. So it's certainly something that's profoundly shaped me. And I suppose I don't know where that what, what kind of skills that prepare me for. The, but I have a profound appreciation. For, I mean, I like choir music and, we, and I yeah. listen to organ music. Uh, and I can I think it's quite nice. Where most of my most of my family think it's the worst noise possible. Do you, do you start blasting it at family gatherings and finish? No, no, I wouldn't do that. But I, I'll have my my noise cancelling headset on and I'll listen to Pasquale and Fugue and C Minor by by Bach, one of my favourites. Oh. Um, so you know. But, but, but I have a great fascination for that, and, and uh, you know, I don't know where that that helps me, but but it's something that uh, I spend a lot of time doing, and and I understand the rituals of the church really well, having been closely, and I suppose that gave yeah. me an understanding of of what ritual is, and and service and faith and those things, and I think they're important parts of many people's lives that you need to to understand, respect, value whether it be the Muslim faith, whether it be the Christian faith, the Jewish faith. You know, I have great respect for faith, not being necessarily a faith. I'm not a faith person myself, but I think there were experiences that also in this religiously wonderful world we live in, appreciating faith and what it means to a lot of people is, is super important. There's a lot of faithful people in this world. And ignoring that fact, which often happens in the Scandinavian sort of, I wouldn't say atheist world, but but it's a, it's a fairly non-believer society. Yeah, post, I think post-faith world, yeah. 
yeah, but understanding that what that means to people in its role is is something I have with me. I think life experiences like that do that. They give you a, a different tool set that enable you to, to relate to people that can feel very different to you. You know, if I speak to a faith, a, a, a strong believing American, which there are a lot of, to understand their take on the world, you, it does help. You've spent a lot of years working in or around churches and, 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 and congregations. I think that can matter. Particularly if in the mid- Midwest America, so, uh, it really matters. These things, that sensitivity is pretty important. And for that oh, yeah. matter, when I, I work a lot in the Middle East, understanding and respecting that cultural, a uh, very, very, very profound cultural uh, set of norms is really important. Yeah. So I think that adds some value to, to the work I do. Yeah, I, I can definitely see that. And I think it also explicitly gives an opportunity to kind of attempt to identify with something beyond your own ego, which is always a positive thing to get out of your ego if you're stuck in it. Well, some would say that that's the most crucial scope. I mean, we talked about perspective shift earlier in the in the podcast, but but in essence, silencing the ego is regarded as one of the key key learning skills of the future. Yeah. Because it blocks your ability to see other perspectives, and that reduces your capability to learn and to see opportunities. I, I mean, that's if you like the instrumental way of looking at. It. You can also look at it from a openness to life experience. You can also yeah. look at it aesthetically, I suppose. Life yeah. is aesthetic, and just say it's just a, a more fun life. I, yeah. I think my frustration is that when I is I think one thing I have learned is the value of being a yes person, not necessarily in the sense, but being able to celebrate and enjoy other people's excitement and success rather than be a person who's constantly saying oh that's not as good that's not better that kind of like very the comparison yeah yes yes and in language saying oh well this is how it's done in britain or this is how it's done in france it's better in britain or it's better in france that kind of conversation's meaningless um and and also really unfortunate to say look yes denmark does it well britain does it well french they they do it differently and 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 a comparison is rather – it blunts your curiosity. <laughs> I, I, com- I completely agree, and you see that. You know, you, you just have to drop that comparative narrative bullshit so that you can be more curious and just be in, in the experience in a different way. Yeah, yeah and in relation to others, you know, yep. because we form judgments very early. And I think whether it be about your own children, learning to avoid putting – names on oh she's impatient he's bossy all those terms don't do it no no example i really fought for many years with my kids you know are they good at maths or are they good at language all those boxes we want to put them in and say well i don't really know why don't we ask that question again in 15 years yeah because if you ask me oh is skip good at languages if you'd ask skip at 15 they would have said no he's crap at it and yeah. yet I'm bilingual today. Well, probably, you know, and working on being three. It's so a fixed, what, it's a fixed mindset question, right? It's, you know, yeah, what definitely. can you do right now? Yeah. And I yeah. think that stands in the way. And, and I've done work very hard at Global Mindset in our organizational culture. And, and people who don't, sarcasm, irony, too much comparison, the inability to, to celebrate others' pleasure, excitement, enjoyment. If you can't do that, you don't have a role to play. No, and it means you have to modify the language you have in your workplace to to do that. And I'm very strong on that point because it, ego seeps in, and it's that ability to to when somebody says, oh, "I had a great weekend," to stay in that person's moment of reliving that great weekend. It's as simple as that, but it's an important skill, and you have to, as a leader, create that in your workplace. Yeah, rather than somebody topping it by saying, "Oh, I had a better weekend." <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. As if that makes any sense at all. Yeah, or even in a difficult conversation you have as a leader, you know, if someone's having an emotionally difficult time, you can empathize without being overly empathetic or dismissing. And I think it's a fine balance by being in it with yep. them. You can be you, you can be available emotionally yeah. without necessarily being and avoid, oh, I know what it feels like. Yeah, because then is, you're kind of back to your own ego anyways, even though you're coming off as yep. this empath. But let me give you a hypothetical. You're invited to a dinner party. You can invite two people from history, whether they're alive or dead today. Um, who would you invite and why? Wow, that's a really, really tough question. Um, there's some many interesting historical figures who you might want to. I'm just struggling with her name. <laughs> she was on the NASA team who invented the word software. She was in charge of test and software development for NASA during the Apollo program. I like to sit down and talk to her about being a mother and a software designer in 1963 in NASA. An interesting conversation. Was it Margaret Hamilton? 
yeah, she eventually got the uh, you know top award for what she did. Uh, but she she was the person who invented the logic of the fail safe system, which actually prevented the crash of Apollo Eleven, which is a really interesting that's story. Kind of, that's, that's kind of important. What she programmed into the system was that when Apollo the the Eagle was descending to the moon, its radar was in the wrong position, which was confusing the very basic computer systems, and what she had developed as a principle for the coding of the navigation system was that if in doubt focus only on altitude so without that they would have crashed wow she had the foresight to see what was the essential and she had the famous comment she had a fight where her daughter had accidentally pressed some buttons on her on her on the computer they were building and basically shut down the whole computer system and she said based on that experience that she wanted to build a failsafe around this particular code that the, the child had accidentally pressed. And NASA said, astronauts don't make mistakes. <laughs> and so they didn't. And what happened was that I think it's Apollo 8. It's one of them were when they were mid-flight between Earth and the moon. One of the astronauts does press what the child had pressed accidentally. And it, it means that it erases all the telemetry from the base computer. The computer on board didn't actually know where it was in space. Uh, So they then had to re-upload the information to make it work. So she's a really interesting person. I think she's, you know, I think we need to find more women heroes in leadership because leadership is so full of male heroes. I think there's an enormous amount of work to be done to celebrate, to understand, to bring female leadership. Because if you think about the debate we have today, the reality is that if you read any leadership book, there's hardly going to be any women in it. Yeah. NASA is a story without women. It's only 50 years after Apollo that we're discovering there were a lot more women in it. I think changing that narrative uh, would be fantastic. And, you know, I was a father to a daughter and yeah. just having a role model, role models and how important that is. Yeah, yeah. And it's just surprisingly difficult to find leadership books that do that. So I think I'd love to invite <laughs> her around for dinner. That would be really good. And hear her life and understand it. That would be really, really amazing. And uh, she'll do. Yeah, it's okay. All right. Well, um couple more questions to wrap up the podcast today. Yeah. The first one is, what book or books have you most gifted or been influenced by? (laughs) Well, I'd have to say Sense Making by Karl Weick, social psychologist, one of the most pretty famous ones. Extremely difficult book to read. You almost have to read it 20 times to understand it. It's not a very long book, but oh boy. Um, it really um, disrupted my thinking about thinking. So mm. I highly recommend it. So what was it really one more time? It's mm-hmm. the Karl Weick book. It's called, I'm pretty sure it's called Sense Making. Okay. He was a specialist in, in how we interpret what's going on around us, how we create meaning. He did a lot of work too on oil rigs and aircraft carriers and stuff like that, which is also something I, I like to use as examples about how do they create make meaning in complex dangerous situations being used quite a lot into safety research you know like how to avoid the king's cross fire and all those classic examples what was going on that meant that people should have done something different or why didn't they see the the alarm signals that kind of thing and and sense making is really important if we're going to understand complexity and stuff like that so he's really cool Risk management tool. Absolutely, but just also just understanding how beliefs uh, shape the way we see the world. You know that we see the world based on what we believe, not right. what we're seeing, and and how do we disrupt that? that? That book's really serious about that. I could name another article that influenced me greatly, which is somewhat controversial. It's an old article from 1958 called "Becoming a Marijuana User" by Howard Becker, and essentially understanding that the experience of marijuana use was fairly. It was neither positive nor negative. It was actually rather ambivalent. Hmm. People think that when you try something, you either like it or don't like it. Yeah. But in reality, what he what he showed was how the the people you're with, how they make sense of it, means that if you know that that even something which is fundamentally chemical like smoking weed is influenced enormously by the social setting. So when we say when learning is fundamentally social. It's our social group that helps us understand and make sense of what's going on around us. Uh, and I think that's super important when we try to think of how do we change societies for the better? How do we change our environmental behavior for the better? And how our positive groups influence that process. Even for fundamentally simple things like what we would consider something innate or uninfluenceable by, you know, there's no limit to how much you're influenced by the people around you. It's wow. really 
it's really powerful. That's what makes us human. We're, we're a sponge to social influence, to peer pressure, both the positive and the negative version. I think you talk about contagious change. Maybe, yep. you know, it's about a contagion of positivity and growth. Yeah, yeah. It's understanding how do we, because everyone understands the burning platform that we just scare everyone until they do something different. It doesn't yeah. actually work very well. So it tends to, to increase the, what they call anxiety too. In other words, can I do it yeah. too much? In other words, people fear that they can't actually do it. We're... Contagious change principles are based on positive change. Uh, yeah. How do you do that? And, and there's quite a lot of alternative research into that. But you have to break the fundamental paradigm. Like I said earlier, theory X, aggressive, controlling, coercive leadership tends to fit within the burning platform, scare people enough, they'll change. But in reality, most change happens in a different way. It happens in a positive context where you are encouraged, reinforced to, to do something that you're successful at. That's not a burning platform. That's burning desire. It's a different idea. But most leaders don't master it. So Absolutely. contagious change is, is about, about how do we use positive reinforcement and create these positive cultures of curiosity, of try something new. And you hear it. I mean, how many people – I get so bored of listening to podcasts about we need to remove the fear of – fear of failure we have to fail fast let's fail 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 failure is not good for you buddy yeah yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> it's not many people recover from failure right when my <laughs> ceiling falls down with all my plaster on it i don't necessarily go yeah <laughs> i read an article it was something to that effect like the beauty of failure or something but if you read the article it said ideally research has shown that hopefully you fail only between 15 to 20 percent of the time otherwise you're fucked <laughs> well this is the whole point i mean for those for those people listening who took situational leadership and a simple idea but, but fundamentally is setting people up for success that's the whole idea of situational leadership i mean it's not rocket science that's a bloody good idea. It's much better that they have an experience of success and autonomy early in their learning cycle than anything else. But unfortunately, the vast majority of adult learners have actually the opposite. They've had failure. So when you meet them in a workplace, they don't learn particularly fast because for them, learning is associated with failure. And then that's the, one of the first things that needs to be rewired. We'll skip on mindful of the time. And uh, I want to wrap up the podcast today with one final question, which sure. we ask all of our guests. And that is, what do you think your work can teach Denmark? And it's a two-parter. And what do you think Denmark can teach the rest of the world? There's a lot to be learned. I mean, I've had a, an amazing experience, you know, the last 28 years being part of that society at Salam. And there's lots of ways they approach both organizational culture, leadership, which in principle are high trust, that are inclusive, that are egalitarian. And these things matter. I think sometimes in the uh, in the global context, it's it's harder to achieve those admirable things, which which is easier to do in a Danish workplace. So I think in general, most people who work for Danish workplaces, particularly people who don't live in Denmark, they'll go, "Wow, this is great." Yeah. Less political, not as far to the top, kind, helpful people, hardworking, transparent, fair, all really good things. You know, it's not accidental that Denmark's one of the fairest, you know, least corrupt societies around. It's good. People like to work in those kind of organizations. So I think that is absolutely a great asset. I think where I can run into some challenges is that often Danish leaders will assume that their way of doing things in Denmark will automatically achieve the same outcomes that they value so much in Denmark in China or in India or places like mm -hmm. that. And mm -hmm. That's where it all goes fairly wrong. And it's, there's a linguistic element to this. Denmark will always struggle because it's very low power distance. In other words, it's very egalitarian. And that means they make lots and lots of errors and misinterpret and tend to put people in boxes who display higher levels of politeness or deference for authority. And that's where it all goes a bit wrong. And so because what happens is if you're deferent, you're dumb. If you're, Danish leaders will assume that deference or over politeness is stupidity because egality, egalitarianism is associated with competence. So the more you treat superiors as equals, the smarter you look, right? Yeah. But in high power distance cultures, that's just not that's just not the the currency you trade with, right? I often talk across cultures like currency. That's just not the currency, you know. Showing disrespect for authority is just disrespectful. It's not showing competence. Right. Yeah. And it has, and it has consequences. Yeah. So, so Danish leaders need to learn to, and I'm lucky because I come from a culture that's more power distant and having gone to a private school and being called my last name for most of my life, I'm more yeah. used to deference. I don't get so confused by it. I don't sit there going, oh, isn't that weird? I just say, no, it's a different society. When I'm in Saudi Arabia, you kowtow to the leader. That's just how it goes. 
Anything else is just problematic. You might be able to over time to, and, and in, in a private setting to, to find a relationship that is more equal, but trying to do that in front of others, tricky. So it's about having that openness to, to navigate in the world that may be not the world you want, but the world that there is in terms of yeah. doing business. My key punchline would be that being yourself doesn't means that you will probably be somebody quite different in that other culture. So you have to start imagining what is the cultural gap, as I would call it, between you and that culture and start imagining that if you want trust, if you want openness, if you want, how do you achieve that through the cultural and linguistic norms of that culture rather than your own? Excellent. Danes will say that I'm not being authentic. And I said, that's not the point. The point is achieving those outcomes within a different set of norms. And that's something that we can all be better at. And it's a wonderful challenge. It definitely is. Well, I think, Skip, that's a wonderful place to, to park it for today. Before we go, uh, is there anything you'd like to promote or tell the audience where they can find you? I know you have a book coming out, I think, too. Yeah. Look, um, the, the, the website, safe, as in then two, as in the number, great.com. Uh, you can find everything about the concepts and we are in the process of accrediting practitioners in our tools and approaches. And we have a really cool way of doing that, which is because we want to create a, an army of people who want to create contagious positive change around the world. So there's an opportunity to do that. And, and obviously globalmindset.info to hear about my organization. Uh, and that'd be fantastic. And who are you going to call? We're the hippo busters. We, we, we bust <laughs> hippos is also our thing. Hippos being toxic leaders. So we, we, we spend time making sure that uh, organizations are just nicer and better to work in. Make them great. Safe for great work is our mission. And when's your book coming out? When I finish the ceiling in the kitchen. <laughs> I think the fall is what they say technically, but for me, it's the, it's the kitchen roof, definitely. Perfect. But very soon, and there's lots of materials already available, video and, and uh, tools and, and PowerPoints and stuff like that. So we've got a lot of stuff already, but the book is, is incubating. Terrific. Well, um, keep us posted. And Skip, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, Likewise. Love having these uh, conversations on the podcast today. And to our audience, don't forget to jump over to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Please, guys, subscribe, rate a review. It, it really does make a difference in terms of getting our conversations out there and continuing to have great conversations like this one today. And until next time, see you on the GDP. Are you getting the most out of your time in Denmark? Pick up the printed copy of the English language newspaper Copenhagen Post today to access relevant news and event information guaranteed to enhance your working and family life.